Hi, welcome back to another episode of Unpack Everything, Science Education Reform in the Real World. I'm Dan Voss. Today, Sam and I are continuing our two-part series, digging into the disciplinary core ideas. If you missed our previous episode, we sat down with Zoe Buck-Bracey to talk about the background of the DCIs, where they came from, how they interact with the other two dimensions, the CCCs and the SEPs, and how they're used by developers when writing curriculum. If you missed that episode, you might want to give it a listen first. Today, we're going to dive deeper into the practical aspects of working with the disciplinary core ideas in the classroom with Dr. Joy Barnes-Johnson. Joy is a progressive science educator who's interested most in issues of equity in the science learning space. As part of her long career teaching chemistry and earth science, she's now the 612 Supervisor of Science at Princeton Public Schools in Princeton, New Jersey. She also has more than 15 years of experience in curriculum assessment and professional development. She received her PhD in urban education and leadership from Temple University, where her dissertation focused on equitable science teaching in an urban elementary school. She's currently working on a project to collate resources and facilitate discussions to develop racial literacy in a local high school community. Discussions in this community help explore systems of racial domination and racial progress. So with that, Let's hear from Joy. Welcome to the podcast, Joy. If you could start us off by telling us who you are, what you do, where you're located. Thank you. My name is Joy Barnes Johnson. I am a, I like to say, STEM and racial literacy educator located in New Jersey, where I have spent the last 30 years being an educator in formal and out of school settings with mostly middle and high school students. Thank you much. We're really excited to have you on, Joy. Yeah, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and we'll talking to you here. So we'll start off with the big question. What does the phrase disciplinary core idea mean to you? <gasps> well, I am a child of the 70s and 80s. And so I think we used to just call these content areas or we used to say, what class are you taking? And that would be biology, chemistry, physics, earth science. And so disciplinary core ideas basically represent what I now understand to be habits of mind that are associated with specific skill sets and knowledges that I formerly tied to the life sciences, my questions about the earth and our environment, chemistry and physics as primary sciences about material and motion, energy, and certainly this new sort of interdisciplinary integrated study of how things are, not just what they are, but how they are and how innovation and creativity factor into the material world. Thanks for that, Joy. So you're located in New Jersey, which is a state that has adopted NGSS. So I'm wondering prior to this, what did your standards look like in general and with regards to content in particular? How are they organized? How were they used? Like, what did they look like when teachers implemented them in their classrooms? 
What a fabulous question. So New Jersey, I often will say, is unique because we were early adopters of NGSS. And even the National Academy of Science and AAAS uh, organizing resources for science, we had when I started my career back in the 90s. So in the 1990s, we had something very similar to the DCIs that were, again, sort of spilling out of that 80s phenomenon where we talked about what classes or what courses, and we looked at life science, biology, earth science, environmental science, chemistry, and physics. But we always had science and society standards, science, technology, and society standards back in the 90s. And that, I think, is what drew me into teaching because, as I mentioned, I'm a science and racial literacy educator. I didn't have that name back then, but I was always interested in history and how history was shaped by science and how science influenced historical events. So that's what it was like from the 1990s. I think our first standards were in 94, somewhere between 1994 and 1997 as science, technology, society started churning and becoming something else, AKA this sort of commitment to make sure that the contributions of a diversity of people in science was, was being heard and recognized. The standards by 2000, 2004 became what very close to what they are now. So, I have always just been fascinated by New Jersey's approach to STEM education because it took a little bit of the old and a lot of bit of the new and challenged teachers to figure out a way to help students be a part of their own learning. So the citizen science standards that were adopted by other organizations before NextGen, which became its own entity, but all of the citizen science stuff that the American Association for the Advancement of Science sort of put out there, we were like, yes. So I remember using those 2004 standards as a basis for my teaching all throughout my career. And so, yeah, it, it was nice. So that when 2011, when NGSS started becoming part of the daily discourse of teachers and researchers, it was very familiar in New Jersey. It was not upsetting at all, quite frankly. Did you notice that your practice shifted at all with the NGSS adoption? Or you said that it was like not a shock to you because of the, the standards you were using before being similar in certain ways. Was there anything that you noticed that was different or like that took you some time to start doing in the classroom? I will say not for me, but for a lot of folks. I think that the language of NGSS was new for a lot of folks who were used to very didactic ways of teaching, the cookbook labs, and used to handouts like all day, right? They were like, no, 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 no. You gotta give them this packet to do and and this is what it's gonna be. Over, okay, chemistry is one of my biases, is one of my big biases. For example, spending weeks teaching children how to write chemical formulas, balance equations, and do stoichiometric calculations just for the sake of doing a bunch of problem solving and calling that problem solving. 
that is not quite what was meant by NGSS, but that's not how I did it, right? So if I wanted students to better understand that we can quantify our product in a chemical reaction, if we have some details about our starting materials, I didn't have them start with the, the paper and pencil. I had them start with baking soda and vinegar and say, now put them together, make sure you know how much you started with and predict how much you get, then see how much you get. And then let's talk about that. Wait a minute, what else is a product? Not just the gas. Oh, wait, it feels cold, right? Why does it feel cold? Oh, so now we start having conversations about phase change and energy budget. Oh, wait a minute, hold up, wait, huh, huh? And so it wasn't that big a deal for me. And I don't know if it's because I actually have a degree in chemistry. I never knew I was going to be a teacher. I didn't start out being a teacher. I thought I was going to be an organic chemist or an analytical chemist. And teaching sort of found me in graduate school. I had to do a teaching assistantship at Spelman College. And the young women that were there blew my mind. They were like, we need you. And I was like, what do you need me for? Right. And then we, it, it was just, it became this rich place for me. And I said, is this what it's like to be a teacher? So all of that being said, it was not that big a deal for me because I was used to exploring and treating experiments as the foundation for all learning. Have the experimental moment, have the conversation after it, and then add the paper pencil. That was always the way that I had done it as a teacher. So it wasn't that big a deal for me. But my colleagues, and now in this supervisory role, it still remains even almost 10 years after the introduction of NGSS into teaching practice that we find some teachers struggle with not giving students answers or releasing the learning to allow students to ask their own questions. Yeah. As you were talking, I was reminded of something that we've heard from a few of our guests previous to this, like that have worked in the science field and not only in science education, that teaching in this way feels like what scientists do, not just teaching kids about science, which is interesting. Every time that I hear it repeated, I'm like, yeah, that is totally true. And it just keeps coming up over and over as we have more and more guests. So that was cool to hear it repeated again. Yeah, it's, it is really, and I, I think that being a high school teacher is one of the reasons why you're going to hear that over and over again, because high school teachers, secondary educators themselves have a responsibility of significant content knowledge before they get started. So for most of us, we have had some authentic science experience. And so the, we're not afraid of the experiment, which again is one of those things that I think makes us biased because, you know, we're like, well, why wouldn't you do that? Why, why wouldn't you start with your questions? Why wouldn't you start with what students are exploring? So whatever the structure of the lesson, I think we're comfortable in that space. Yeah. It sounds like in your classroom, you were trying to engage students in these practices. Maybe they weren't named practices at that time, but you were giving them opportunities to engage and start with the experiment, collect the data themselves, 
try to make some sense of it in order to figure out this content, which we now call the DCIs. Why did that feel like the best place to start for you? How did you accomplish that? Why was it important to do it in that way? Well, I think it was important to do it that way because the 21st century demanded it, right? Unlike unlike when I was a student, the internet didn't exist. The availability of resources was just extremely different. Now, children have a much harder time, I think, or people, not just children, have a much more difficult time trusting teachers who don't allow questions to live and breathe in the classroom. <laughs> so if you are afraid of questions and questioning and, and wondering and questions, kids and people will Google it. <laughs> they will use whatever devices are available to them to find the answer without you. And who knew, like, I never knew where you could order supplies to do things at home. Well, okay, children go on Amazon and you can pretty much order whatever you want to, to build a kit. Or I was like, what? So in the end, I think, why fight it? I'm like, go with it and allow questions to and wonderings to feed the classroom environment allow it to enrich the classroom space so that everyone leaves feeling like, oh, wow, I am this, I can do this. And I want to extend this beyond this classroom. I'm thinking of maybe teachers that you work with, maybe teachers that I work with that are struggling to start there with students because they're so used to like, this is the content I need to teach. So I'm going to tell you the content so you can then tell me the content back. What kinds of supports or guidance have you found are helpful in making that shift or making teachers feel like that that shift is a necessary shift to take? That's an excellent question. I cannot pinpoint it to any one thing, but I will say that I still value open source materials, whether it's FET or Open Syed or any of the things that are available that have been vetted. Because there's a lot of things that are available that I would not consult because I don't, again, trust. Even as a teacher, I'm like, hmm, yeah, no, I don't trust that thing. For example, there are so many YouTube videos that pretty much any person can publish that show all kinds of things, but I don't trust it. And maybe I should, but I, I just don't because I'm just like, hmm, YouTube calls itself a social media platform. So that becomes something that you have to question. And I think a healthy suspicion around that is important. So. With all of that being said, I would say, I think that the research community and the education, higher education's commitment to K-12 is necessary. They need to be the ones that are intentionally crafting materials that 
teachers don't have time to 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 do right so allow that to be a research project and then help teachers craft things that are going to be higher quality the innovative aspects of AI, for example, and its use to mine very specific types of data that could then be used in a classroom, allowing higher education to mine data sets that can be used for secondary data analysis in the classroom. Teachers don't have time to find the best data. That's, and so if higher education creates a project that will allow us to sort of know this has already been vetted, let's use this and we not have to worry about flawed or information, fake news or anything else. Oof, that's good. That saves a lot of time because we're the ones that are actually grading 100 papers times four every week or, or whatever. So we just don't have the time. It's not that we don't want to engage students in these kinds of activities, but the reality of it is, mm, yeah, who's got time for that? It sounds like that takes a giant thing off of the plate of the teacher. If we have access to high quality materials that come from people who care deeply about doing this work, have vetted it to make sure that it's accurate and like to the best standards it can possibly be held, then teachers have more freedom to figure out how to use those things in the classroom with students and how to get students to reach these DCIs in a way that's an authentic learning experience. Absolutely. 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 Because without it, again, we just get into a cycle of distrust of information. One of the best conversations I was able to hear and books I was able to read was actually by Naomi Oreskes, Why Trust Science, right? She she started this conversation a few years ago as a panel discussion, and then she went on and wrote a book about it. And the book is amazing. And as a science educator, you sit and say to yourself, yeah, I wonder if this student of mine who's completely disengaged just doesn't trust the science. And you're like, mm hmm So when you have people who are able to get high quality information that I can then help guide that student to, and it, in full transparency that there are errors in most reports and that there are biases in all experiments, but I can do it openly knowing what the limitations of the data set are or knowing what the problems in the experimental design are that I didn't have to figure out, right? I, again, am trying to deal with a hundred humans and four assignments every week. So I am like, there is some stuff that I want to depend on that I can pull from my back pocket because it was based on my own wondering. But when they the students have new wonderings. I want to be able to go to trusted sources. Thanks, Joy. And as you talk about that, like we have to have these trustworthy sources where students can go and also where teachers can go for, you know, for, for materials to use. I'm thinking about the complexity of some of what we see in the standards. 
so thinking about like the the disciplinary core ideas, the text of them, sometimes there's a lot there. And I, I know as a designer, I feel like one of our jobs is to help break that down for teachers and think about, okay, what does that actually mean in practice? But like it is, you know, in the classroom, you still have to have an understanding of where that comes from. So where games a strong word, but we're going to play do a little activity. I'm going to put a fairly complicated sounding piece of DCI text in the chat. And I'll, I'll read it out loud because it turns out the listeners can't see our chat. And then I would love to hear some of your impressions of it. What does this text tell you about what the important science ideas for students? And then I'll, I'll kind of have some follow-up questions as well. So text is going in the chat now. Chemical processes, their rates, and whether or not energy is stored or released can be understood in terms of the collisions of molecules and the rearrangements of atoms into new molecules with consequent changes in the sum of all bond energies in the set of molecules that are matched by changes in kinetic energy. That was one sentence. I don't think we necessarily need to address every little piece of that, but just generally what What's in there that maybe makes you think about chemistry a little bit differently as a teacher? That right there is my baking soda and vinegar in a balloon and a bottle waiting to happen, right? So the the word chemical process, for most people, they understand baking soda and vinegar. That when they were in elementary school, they called that a volcano. I said, that's not a volcano, but whatever. That's a chemical process. And then you go with collisions of molecules. You get this sense that once they mix, once the two substances collide, something is happening that's going to blow up the balloon that's attached to that, that soda bottle or that water bottle or that whatever. And you say, wait a minute. The, the tricky part is sum of all bond energies. Now, what does that mean? Because you're like, wait a minute. What's bonding? Oh, my God. So in the end, this beautifully complicated sentence becomes a, what do you notice? What do you wonder when we put baking soda into vinegar? And how does that relate to energy? Right? And so the fuzzy, the warm and fuzzy feeling that older children will get thinking about what that meant when they were in elementary school is the typical like, oh, wait, that's what I know now. That's not a volcano. I understand it. This is that. Uh, this is a chemical process. Oh, wait, I understand it's an endothermic process. Oh, wait, I understand that gas is being evolved. Oh, wait, I understand that gases have more energy than liquids. And wait, hold up. I understand. So all of this in relation to the solid, wait, how did a solid when mixed with a liquid generate this gas? You start having conversations about bonding. So I think that this as a DCI says, yeah, this is the chemistry, but there's a whole lot of physics in there. And perhaps there's a whole lot of something else in there. Because when we start thinking about what's happening in a gaseous environment, then we can start thinking and imagining what's happening on other planets and or what's happening in other locations where gas behavior is different. So you start to say, hold up, there's more to this. 
And I, I love this idea that we can actually go beyond the text and start to make connections to other places in the framework, other disciplinary ideas across various parts of science and outside science. But the fact remains what the text I just read off is really complicated. Yes, and someone could be listening right now and get a little skeptical when you say, oh, yeah, we start with baking soda and vinegar. And we can get to these things. So how do you actually go about planning and preparing to scaffold students from, oh, cool, we see this happening, to complex explanations of what's actually going on in that reaction? Yeah. So one of my favorite things to do is actually to, again, have children play first. I believe that safe play in science helps them be more creative. And so once they're playing and exploring, the scaffolding comes with, okay, now explain or draw, represent this phenomenon with this thing, find students who are like, I don't draw. And I have them pull out that trusty, dusty cell phone and record it and slow it down and say, now watch this in slow motion. What does that do? And then automatically you're getting people to say, oh, wait, I see evidence that the rate is different when you use this amount or if the the liquid is hot versus whether it's cold, right? So you, you create enough difference in the environment that people want to know, well, what happened over there? What happened with yours? What happened? Mine didn't do that. And you start generating conversation. So I think, again, one of the challenges that teachers have is to find ways that students compete less, but remain competitive. So when you focus on an individual learning experience, then everything is competition. No one's talking to each other. And it really is a dull learning space. So you can't, the way that you take any kind of complicated learning expectation, performance expectation, and make it manageable is to create opportunities for everyone in that learning environment to do something a little bit different, but intentionally. So that again, I, I, I don't like competition in the classroom for the sake of competing because then it creates a lack of integrity when it comes to other things that you try to do. And what I hear you saying is a lot of this work that we need that we we need to do in terms of making it manageable comes down to saying, okay, students, you know, not everyone is going to have all the information we need to identify a pattern. So we need to kind of pay attention to each other and work across in order to start to see something emerging that might give us information we see. So in NGSS terminology. We're, we're thinking about the cross-cutting concept of patterns here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And being able to distinguish patterns or, or recognize patterns, um, even though the materials may be slightly different. So for example, I love the baking soda vinegar because it brings the warm and fuzzy from before, but, you know, an iodine clock or... <laughs> Uh, not a not a chemical process entirely, but just having kids look at Alka-Seltzer, 
right? And what happens when you do something different to Alka-Seltzer or if you can't find that denture tablets to clean them, whatever the case may be to actually expose some of the core ideas that's embedded in this learning expectation. So it, you're looking at a process and then you're looking at rate and you're saying, okay, wait, how do I know if energy is being stored or released? It's so you can start with the things that are the most familiar. And this is especially important when you're dealing with multilingual learners. This right here would be an absolute turnoff. They'd be like, all right, I can't do this. So imagine a teacher crafts a learning objective for the day. What would the students know and be able to do? You know, the swabet statements that you find in the millions of classrooms all around the United States. It's like, what are they going to be able to do? So I think you start with the, the, the most manageable collision of a molecule. Wait a minute, that's a scale question. Like what, what's it look like when molecules collide? And, and so I think that is how you do it. Scaffolding must start where the most people can get in, right? You got to get on the train, you got to get on the bus, and then you go. So it's like, I, I mean, I'm a New Yorker. So you start thinking about what happens when you're at 34th Street and you're on the A train trying to get to Brooklyn. You already know it's going to be crowded. So you better go either downtown World Trade Center where Chamber Street, where you know it's going to be less crowded going into Brooklyn because that's where it starts expressing. There are a million other ways for you to get uptown or through through the city. So you, you got to get there and say, where are the major stops and major starts for the content? And most people will get on with you. Thank you. I, I love this idea of we have to start from where students are, what, where we can catch the most of them. Now, here's the thing you've mentioned, you've mentioned ideas about interdisciplinarity You've mentioned trying to make sure we've got some pieces in there, like the, you know, we can connect back to the volcanoes. There's a little, a little bit of warm fuzzies for students. That stuff takes time. And we also, it takes time to build chemical processes, the rates and whether or not energy, blah, blah, blah. So how do you balance that? How do you kind of make sure students are building these chemistry ideas that your class is ostensibly responsible for? while also doing all these other things that are really important. I'm really fortunate in my learning community. We have, a com we've made a commitment to intense lab learning. So in our, let's, it's very bizarre, but let's say 11 days. So two weeks in a day, two school weeks in a day, children will have had three different intensive lab periods. So they would have had uh, three 80 minute blocks of time where they get to spend exploring specific topics and then one 90 minute block. So that that's a lot of time that they will have had committed to investigating a particular thing because two weeks in a day is essentially for a lot of people a unit, right? So in that unit, you would have had three or four labs like 
extended learning opportunities with this thing. And so that's how we are able to do it. And for me, I am, I'm a fan of 5E, 6E, 7E, whatever number of E's you need to make sure that children are exploring and engaging with a topic before I even start talking about the thing. And it is, it's a privilege I recognize because there are many systems that don't have that. So I think that's just been the saving grace for me. So what I'm hearing is it really takes time. By investing that time, what what do you see as the benefit, as the outcome? Joy. I see students having joyful learning experiences. I am out of the classroom now for, I've been out of the classroom now for two years. However, my last cohort of chemistry students are now seniors. And three of them recently have come to me and said, Dr. BJ, your class was the best science class I ever had. And I said, really? Why? Now they're now in in all of these very sophisticated classes. They were like, you allowed us to really have fun in the class. And I think that's the, the core, right? So when you allow safe play, because I'm like safety first. I don't care what you look like, put those goggles on, right? So I'm, I'm there for, yes, we're working with cocoa powder. I don't care. Put your goggles on. So that's just how I am. But the more they're able to sort of manipulate things and see it and smell it and actually experience it, they develop their own questions and their own peculiar ways of, of, interacting with the material. And so it's the only way to do, it really is the only way to do science. I mean, I realize that that creates scientific thinkers, critical thinkers who are prepared to innovate. And yes, it's, it's a struggle because structurally there are differences with AP classes, for example. But I'm like, even in AP class, please give students opportunities to wonder and manipulate stuff. You mentioned something in your answer here that comes up a lot in the work that you publish online, which is the idea of Black joy. So I'm wondering if you could share with our audience what that means to you generally when you use that term, and then also how you think of it as a teacher of science and like the importance of it in the classroom? Yeah, I think black joy, brown joy, any kind of joy must be based in who you see yourself as. So I see myself as a black American, so I'm black joy. But you know, in the end, black joy itself is something much more complicated because in science, it is not like black folks are in a canon of science. Black scientists are in a canon of exceptional scientists. Here's an, a case in point. I loved Oppenheimer. I saw it twice. I saw it on opening night and then I saw it like two days later. I was like, <gasps> right? I loved it. It was a nerd fest both times, but I absolutely loved it. The moment when I saw a character that was a black female student in the classroom with Oppenheimer. He comes in, 
And the first day there's that one student, the second day supposedly, or the second time they showed, there's maybe three students. By the third day, there was this young black female student sitting there like this. That was black joy. Black joy is about recognizing, wait a minute, there is someone out there like me that's doing this thing that no one expected to be there. Then of course, I'm thinking, oh, that's a Carolyn Parker character. People say, Joy, who is Carolyn Parker? And I say, Carolyn Parker was one of the physicists that was part of the uh, Manhattan Project that no one knows. She ended up dying before she got her PhD from radiation exposure. But the bottom line is she was a brilliant physicist in that moment. What do you mean? The 1940s? Yes. And you say, oh my goodness, that's amazing. So what is, is, is so important? Any kind of joy, cultural joy is about identity formation, recognizing that all forms of representation matter. The intentional challenges that teachers provide that allow students to expose to their peers nuanced memories in their culture that they celebrate privately, but that should not be private. For example, I think of Ramanujan. Ramanujan was an Indian mathematician at the turn of the century. And he was a Hindu and he prayed a lot and he was a brilliant mathematician. No one knew who he was. And he was like, all right. He goes to Europe to study under one of the most famous mathematicians. I don't know. That's not my field. But, you know, he felt like an outsider. Black joy is about taking people who felt like they were outside of the mainstream of, of knowledge and making pathways for them to come in and be themselves without being stereotyped without feeling unique because they're not really, <laughs> they're not really. They just, it, it is so important. And it's, at least for me, that's the way I've always seen. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And I love this idea that in the science classroom, students should experience joy in who they are and in what science is and in how those two things interplay and recognize that this is something that has meaning and purpose for me. Yeah. Yeah, with that, I want to take that and apply it to something that first glance seems like the opposite of joy, which is assessment. So you've done some really interesting work in assessment. Could you just talk about that a little bit? And you know how, how has that the work you're doing there maybe look different than one might expect when they hear assessment? Well, it's really funny. So I have on my K-12 assessment shirt, which says, okay, testing the standards of excellence while setting the standards of testing. Testing is not your enemy because a test will allow you to self-evaluate, self-organize, if it is done well, and if it is differentiated and or adaptive. So the work that I have done in testing is largely been with the standards where I'm saying, okay, has the person being tested got everything they need 
to answer the question we ask. Do they have enough information embedded in the question to apply the skills and then move forward? Oftentimes, I think the tragedy with testing is that there is no schema for the test taker to understand what you're even asking them. It's too many words or the, it's so far out, out left field. You're like, wait a minute, what, what kind of test is this? Is this a reading test or is this a chemistry test? And sometimes, even though there's a lot of text in a question or on an assessment, there should still be adequate representations, aka models of that text that students who are multilingual or who have reading challenges can still answer the content. So the work I do in testing is largely around differentiated assessment. Most people have no struggle with differentiated instruction, but then they give everybody the same test. And I'm like, oh, that's a problem. Because if you're doing an assessment, let's say of, let's say these chemical processes where you're trying to see if students understand rate relationships and energy, then some children can just take that, uh, take a statement and figure out what you're doing. Others will be able to take a, a chemical equation with a data table and make sense of it. Still others will need to, to have some kind of visual representation of the chemical change, whether it's a particle view or, or something else. And then still others may and should have access to an actual tactile physical resource. One of the biggest challenges that I have right now is in preparing for a child who is blind. That is something I think is so important for us to do. Assessment for that child will be very different. And, and it should be because that child can still learn chemistry. There's nothing wrong with his brain. So I think that we have this challenge to put our money where our mouth is and actually make assessments that are better aligned to the standard, meaning they will have ways for students to prove, demonstrate what they actually know about the chemical processes with an actual chemical process or an experiment that they design and that teachers be prepared to evaluate it fairly. Yeah, thanks for that. It's exciting to envision. And after in the new year, just a sneak peek, I think we'll probably spend some more time talking to folks about assessment, but it's exciting to imagine ways in which assessment could be not just pencil and paper fill in the circles test, but something that actually connects with students on some meaningful level and gives them a chance to show whatever it was they figured out in some sort of meaningful context. That's right. That's right. And I know it takes a lot of time, right? Because it's intensive materials, technology, thankfully, can handle most of it. So I'm like, all these uh, devices have cameras, right? Oh, yes, they do. So there's a way for us to do this better. One thing I've been thinking about is a conversation that we had before we started recording, actually, where you mentioned the importance of taking the research that's done and putting it into practice in classrooms and how that has been disconnected 
and how long of a process that actually takes to see results. I'm wondering what your experience has been like on both sides of that, being in the research space, being in the classroom, both at the same time too, and what your experience has been like with that. I think one of the most interesting research projects I was on was a computational thinking project with Dr. Jackie Leonard. And I kept saying to myself, when is this going to get to the classroom, right? How are we going to be able to use this? Because math practices include computational thinking, quantitative reasoning, algebraic reasoning, all these kinds of things. But it's hard to imagine what that's like when you're looking at coding, for example, or looking at logic. It's, it's not a philosophy class. So what's it look like on, this, on a level? So that project I was on perhaps in 2000, between 2015 and 2019. And now in 2021, 22, I started seeing it. So I'm like, the window is shortening. And I think it's, it is really because of technology, right? So we have these tools. This is one of the beneficial unintended consequences of COVID. The overwhelming number of schools that school districts that went to one-to-one devices for their students. So there you have it. <laughs> so people have resources in their hand. And as more and more organizations commit to doing research intentioned for schools, oh, it'll it'll go faster because now we have the tools in our hands. That's a wonderful thought to hear. So two more quick questions before we let you go. First one, this episode is going to be released in the new year. You get to kick off January 2024. Sounds so futuristic. And we want to know what are your New Year's resolutions as an educator? As an educator, I have a big, I want to do more with AI. I really do. And I want to build conversations where teachers feel safe to use it with their students. So that's number one. My second New Year's resolution as an educator is to actually spend some more time with other educators, right? It's last year, 2022-2023 was really just a acclimation to a new role. And I had the wonderful experience over the pandemic to be with educators from all around the world, I feel, because we were just connected differently. And then we got away from it. So I want to get back to that because I learned so much from spending time in conversation with other educators. So I want to get back to that. So those, I think, are my two big ones. Awesome. And last thing, I got to say, every single time we talk, Joy, I feel like I end up with a list of things to look at or look into. And thinking specifically about your work, but maybe more generally, if you wish to go there, is there anything you'd like to pitch before we go? Pitch! Oh, yes! Well, okay. So I am on this new journey to understand biographies of people from 100 years ago. 
So I've been doing a lot of reading of biographies and or conversations from the beginning of the 20th century trying to understand. I just finished reading reading slash listening to The Body by Bill Bryson. Now, biology is definitely not my jam at all, at all. But this was fascinating. And so I say we will do really well as STEM educators if we spend more time learning about, learning the backstory for some of these folks to learn about all of the the ways that science was done incorrectly to create this terrible code of mistrust. Everyone should read something from George Washington Carver. If you call yourself an environmentalist, everyone should go back and explore the Blackwell sisters if they're interested in anatomy and physiology because there were so many important stories that are not told. I'm like, Google Books and Internet Archive, there are lots of books that are going into the public domain now. And so I'm like, start learning about people you didn't know about, whether they be women or people of color who have been very necessary parts of a scientific canon of history. And we need to know their, their stories. Well, thank you, Joy. Thanks for spending time with us. This has been an absolute blast. Thanks, Joy. Yay! I mean, you know, I love it. This is fantastic. So thank you so much. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Syed Pod. Our music is Rainbows by Scott Buckley.